I'm Teffer. And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! Yeah! get back into our series on Harry Potter, uh, we find it necessary to reiterate that liking Harry Potter as a queer person, liking Harry Potter as a trans person, liking Harry Potter as an ally of queer and trans people, uh, becomes increasingly more complicated with the more stupid bullshit that the author puts on the internet. And this week we got to see this person hijack a conversation about the importance of dismantling systemic racism to make it all about her personal uh, misguided and bigoted feelings about trans people. This is a really uncomfortable conversation for trans people who grew up with the world of Hogwarts and with Harry Potter and for many of us have seen a lot of ourselves reflected in many of the struggles and a lot of us are really disappointed and angry. I'm sure we're going to talk about this more in the future but we just wanted to make it really clear that we do not support these comments. We do not agree with this person. We are a group of queer and trans people talking about books and uh, we knew getting into this um that that was going to be an issue we would have to address. We didn't know it would be quite this, uh, (laughs) quite this relevant. But, uh, you know, she says stupid shit on the internet all the time, so we probably should have expected it. Um, Anyway, we support queer and trans people. We are queer and or trans people. And um, this is why we have decided that there is no author to Harry Potter. The author is lost to the mists of time. That's one of the fascinating things about this series. So this week, we are getting into Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, the sixth book in the seven-part series. We are joined today by Catherine McGuire. Catherine was one of our first patrons. Uh, She is also one of the first people I met in Montreal. We have known each other for 11 years since I was but a wee babe. Um, Catherine is studying to be a librarian, and... uh, Did I mention that she's one of our patrons? I might have missed that, but she is, and she's great. And if you become one of our patrons, you too can uh, occasionally guest on episodes, just like Catherine. Kat, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, you asked to be on Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I can't remember if this was your choice or if this was just what was left. (laughs) This is what was left. Okay. My my first choice was the uh, Order of the Phoenix, because I love secret societies. But... uh, in rereading, I'm quite glad that I'm on this one. Yeah, so what what were our thoughts, feelings on rereads? I really enjoyed this book as a as a reread. I always find I always I always find like Harry's like Draco Malfoy obsession and then the part where he almost murders him to be very like cringy and stress me out. Um but otherwise I think that this book is very rich. It has a lot going on. Um, and I especially, like, found my, like, adult grown-up perspective on the Harry Dumbledore stuff very interesting this time. And I want to get into that. But what 
what were other people's feelings on uh, on rereading this book? I also had some a lot more sympathy for Dumbledore than I usually do. I usually hate him, and I I uh, also had more sympathy for Snape than I usually do because I usually dislike him quite strongly. Also, um, and I I I I can sympathize with finding. Harry's Draco obsession really irritating because it is, but also he was right, and it's not like Draco wasn't hasn't in the past been super obsessed with him. Also, so you know, turnarounds, fair play. I find it really interesting that both of you brought up the Draco obsession, and and both of you like, well, maybe Bailey more than Cat, but put kind of a negative light on it um, because we've had this going thesis through this series that, well, I have anyway, that Harry is bisexual mm-hmm. and I think Harry's obsession with Draco makes a lot of sense um but I also yeah I do like like he was right and I find it really interesting like I think this is the first time Harry's been right about what Draco's up to Harry in every single book is like Draco is doing some nefarious thing and Draco's never doing a nefarious thing and in this book Draco is doing a nefarious thing but once again there's the issue where Harry is like I think Draco is trying to do something very dangerous and instead of you know passing that along to me I guess he does pass it along to people who brush him off because he's been crying wolf for five years well do we think Draco might have been might have been saved. I guess there were enough adults aware of what Draco was doing and trying to to actually protect him, and Harry was just outside of that loop. Yeah, so I feel like I should rephrase my earlier comments slightly, because it's not so much the obsession with Draco Malfoy that stresses me out in this book, because, very excellent point, he was correct. Like, he was on to something. It's more like all of the very stupid stuff that he does because of that. Like hiding in Draco's compartment in the invisibility cloak and doing it very badly and then getting his face stomped on. Um, it's just like all of the extremely foolish stuff that Harry does is is the thing that makes me cringy to clarify. But okay, so I'm actually really, I'm going to be really interested to talk about Dumbledore with you, Kat, because I had basically the opposite on this rereading, which is like when I was like, I read these books first and most often when I was a lot younger and a lot less critical of a reader and always like liked Dumbledore a lot and sort of bought into the prescribed narrative of like Dumbledore as a hero um and very much had the experience on this reading of like Dumbledore is being a terrible teacher and extremely manipulative and extremely inappropriate with Harry and I'm sure we'll talk about this more but especially in reading the Draco Malfoy stuff, because like like you folks have both said, like, Harry always thinks Draco Malfoy is up to something, and he's always wrong, and that's why people are all dismissing him. Except for Dumbledore knows that Harry is correct, and also dismisses him. And obviously, he can't necessarily tell Harry exactly what he knows, but um, I feel like he could have handled that in a less gaslighty way towards Harry. I can definitely agree with that. I don't. I certainly do not think that Dumbledore is a paragon of virtue or wise decisions because he's real not. But I think what I sympathized with in this one 
Whereas in like other books, he, he knows things and he just doesn't tell Harry. In this one, he knows things and he wants to tell him in a certain way. And he is sharing information with him. And he is also working really hard to try to find more information. So I felt in others in other books he he just kept secrets for the sake of it. Whereas in this one I felt like he was like, it's really important that you understand Voldemort's true history and nature and that's the most important thing that I have that I can share with you so we're going to start there I, I, like I could I can I definitely would agree that he could have said something more like yeah I'll keep an eye on Malfoy or I'll have somebody keep an eye on Malfoy because we do see that he he also is taking it seriously that they're leaving the tower at night because he's asked um, McGonagall to to uh, defend but he doesn't share that information with Harry. He only shares, like, he has an issue with knowing what is important, <laughs> for sure. And, uh, but I, I appreciated that he was, he was trying to share information and that he was exhausted by what else he was doing behind the scenes. Yeah, I think there's there's really something to, like, Dumbledore is taking care of Harry's safety but he isn't necessarily thinking about his well-being and like Kat I love that you brought up he could have just said I'll keep an eye on Draco like even if it wasn't true it would have saved Harry so much stress in this book to just think okay Dumbledore's taking this seriously and and looking out for it especially once we know that Dumbledore knew the whole time you know he could have just said like yeah it's handled and that would have been so much better for Harry overall. At the same time, now that I'm saying that, Dumbledore is aware at this point, I think, that Harry is a horcrux. And I think is also aware that he's not sure how much access that gives Voldemort to Harry's thoughts. So there is the question of if Harry had been more skilled, say, at learning occlumency, um, would Dumbledore have been able to tell him more? Because if Dumbledore said something as simple as, I'll keep an eye on Malfoy, and Voldemort heard that, that that could put Draco's life at risk, right? That's a really good point that I had not thought of before. I really, yeah, that, that does make it make more sense that he does that. Um, and I do, I really, I liked your point, Kat, that um, at least in this book, like Dumbledore has sort of dropped his his sort of thing of just obfuscation and not ever telling Harry anything, which is very refreshing. I think the other thing that really struck me, um, the like really rubbed me the wrong way about Dumbledore in this book is the whole thing with Slughorn and the Slughorn memory and just how sort of like, there's one scene and maybe I will try to find it where like Harry hasn't got the memory and Dumbledore... Like, instead of, instead of talking to him, like, reasonably and being like, I know that you have a lot on your plate, Harry. This is extremely important. Like, let's brainstorm, like, strategies and whatever. He's just like, well, if you don't think that this is more important than Quidditch, then there's no point in us doing anything. And it's just very sort of, like, cruel and manipulative and not, and, and like, guilt trippy. And I really didn't like it. Especially since it's immediately or not immediately, but very nearly immediately after his best friend has been poisoned. 
It is mean. It is snappy. I, however, as a parent, which I mean, Dumbledore is not Harry's parent, but I do feel like I have definitely been there and said the wrong thing <laughs> in that moment. <laughs> I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying I understand it f- from a from a perspective of frustration and short temperedness. That's fair. I guess it is important to remember that like Dumbledore is a human person. Um, who is also like actively dying at this point, and that must be a little bit stressful. So that is that is fair. Actually, I hadn't thought sort of thought of reading the book through the lens of like Dumbledore knows he has a year left to live and is very stressed out about like putting everything in place for the defeat of Dumbledore of Voldemort before he dies. That is very interesting. Yeah, it definitely puts into perspective like how what like what he does choose to share and how much he, value he places on on like people's character and knowledge of their like creating sympathy in a way almost for Voldemort but also like giving Harry an understanding of his motivations as like as something that will enable him to defeat him yeah absolutely like he's very he's having to try and figure out like what the important information to convey is um if i may pivot us to another topic Mm -hmm. um the occlumency that somebody brought up reminded me of another really interesting thing that i was thinking about about snape in this book is um snape is such a good example of how you can be very good at a thing and be terrible at teaching it um Mm -hmm. and i was thinking about that a lot in re snape and in re like how we see that, like, Snape is an incredible Occlumens, and so Dumbledore was like, the best Occlumens I know should be the person to teach Harry. But he's also a terrible teacher, so that was a bad call. And same with, like, when Snape is not actually trying to be a teacher, when he's just leaving notes on how to do potions well, he ends up being a great teacher to Harry. But when he was actually his teacher he was not in any way, shape, or form able to actually help his students learn. Quote on page 224. On the other hand, the prince had proved a much more effective teacher than Snape so far. Now, do you think that Snape specifically, like, refused to teach his students his tricks because he didn't want to be surpassed? Or do you think that Harry was just too busy being a little shit boy to, like, pay attention? No, I very much think that Snape, I was thinking about this a lot, I think that Snape is a bad teacher primarily because he revels in being better and smarter than other people. Um, And you can't be a good teacher if you enjoy being smarter and superior to your students. Like, I, I think that Snape is a bad teacher because he's not interested in helping his students learn he's interested in sort of like boosting his ego by believing that he alone is special and good at things and that um the people he's trying to teach are just incapable and he's kind of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy there mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i think that that um snape probably also didn't want to be a teacher like, I don't think that that would have been something that he would have chosen for himself. I think that he felt like that was a position that he could conceivably use to pretend to be a double agent, that he could conceivably use to stay close to Dumbledore and to see what was happening with, with 
uh, students of Death Eaters, like their children, children of Death Eaters, and like keep his finger on the pulse of what was happening in a way that that he wouldn't have been able to do in other places. But I don't think he would have, I don't think he enjoys it in any way. I think you're definitely right about that, about it being a um, strategic position for him. Now, I don't know what, I guess you can become an industrial potioneer. I'm trying to think about like what the non-academic track would be for any of these jobs. But, you know, I think Snape would rather yeah. be being written up in Witches Weekly as an expert potioneer <laughs> um, mm-hmm. than teaching. I do think, because Bailey, you brought this up with regards to occlumency originally, or occlumency, I don't know. I I think that in that case, maybe also in potions as well, but I think that's a really good indication of the fact that sometimes the things that people do intuitively, they are very bad at teaching. For example, mm-hmm. I am a good cook. I am very bad at teaching people how to cook because I end up just being like, oh, you know, you just do this and uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, And I think that's another kind of point here is that Snape is kind of a virtuoso. He's kind of just naturally good at things um, like potions and occlumency, not like, um, you know, teaching or being kind. Um, And that's like, I think, uh, a significant point here. And I think that's also why we saw Lupin being a more effective teacher, although, as we pointed out, he maybe didn't have the most formal teaching experience uh, because he was mostly interested at seeing the students learn um, even if he wasn't necessarily you know a genius like Snape because I do I do think Snape is talented I, I don't think there's any doubt that Snape is very good at what he does yeah that's a really good point that he that there's also that aspect of like he just doesn't he doesn't understand, like, he doesn't understand not understanding, and so he gets frustrated with his students um, for not just getting things automatically and that sort of thing. That makes a lot of sense. Um, also, I'm just struck by this. Snape is like every university professor who's only a professor because they want to do research and they just are made to teach on the side um, is, I think, a very good metaphor for what Snape is. Absolutely. That also reminded me, Tefer, of the part in the book where they're at at um, at Christmas time at Ron's family's house, the Weasleys. That's their name. They're at the Weasleys' house for Christmas, and Harry is asking Lupin about Snape and why, like, doesn't he hate him? And Lupin is like, "No, I, you know, I've grown up a bit since then," and and Snape. I don't like him, but I also have seen the good things that he's done, like making me this potion and keeping me safe. And like, I've, I've learned to see past that, but unfortunately, like you're still in the grips of, of James's and Sirius's hatred of him. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's such a good moment. Um, it's the brief moments of adult perspective in this book are always very helpful. The brief moments of like, sure, I don't, I don't like this guy, but it doesn't mean I can't work with him. It doesn't mean I can't fight with him because realistically, when we're talking about, you know, a revolution, you can't just decide that you don't want to revolt with people you don't like if you all share the same cause. I do wonder, thinking about that, I I wonder how Snape might have been different if he was not sort of 
perfectly placed to be a double agent. Like we see that a lot when people talk about double agents, that it kind of warps your soul a little bit. And I do wonder uh, if part of why Snape kind of got arrested in his youthful vindictiveness and pettiness is that he wasn't really ever able to move on from that. Although I guess there were 11 years when, you know, presumably Voldemort was gone (laughs) where he could have done some growth. Yeah, I have. So I have a lot of like theories about Snape and why Snape is the way he is. Um, while still ostensibly being on the side of the Order of the Phoenix. Um, but I feel like that's more a conversation for the seventh book. Uh, <laughs> so I feel like I shouldn't get into that whole thing. Um, I'm, I'm conscious that we mostly haven't been talking about what the trio's been up to in this book. Um, do we have any feelings about uh, Ron being a massive tool? Ron is such an idiot in this book. I mostly... Honestly, just was like, oh, right, Ron. Mm. Okay, keep... keep it, just Okay, still Ron? Okay. Okay, good. More, more, more story. I can ignore him. Because he just was unable to process his own feelings and took them out on everybody else around him and used people to, like, specifically Lavender Brown, used Lavender to, like, get the upper hand on Hermione and Ginny in a weird way. And... Like, was just gross. Yeah, Ron's definitely using misogyny to make himself feel better. Except it's not actually working because misogyny just sucks. Speaking of Lavender Brown, <laughs> one more little bummer note I do have to bring up because I just, I just feel like this needs to be pointed out always. But in the movie, Lavender Brown was played by a black actress until the sixth movie when they realized she was going to date Ron when they recast her as very white, very blonde, and very blue-eyed. Mm-hmm. And that's a choice that was made that I just think we need to call out every chance we get because that, my friends, is racism. And the party line is that apparently there were black girls in the audition call and this girl just outacted everybody so much that they just had to cast her. But, you know, we know that's bullshit. Um, so that happened. Yeah, Ron, I feel like, has never been as much of a tool as he is in this book. I think this book is mm. when Ron's toolness peaks. And I hadn't thought about him There's being... still another book. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> well, peaks. I, I think he's at his toolishness in this one. I may eat my words next week. We'll see. You th- do you think I'm going to eat my words? <laughs> I do. All right. Um, but he... I, I mean, obviously he uses lavender, and, and that sucks. But I hadn't thought about what a dick he is to Ginny. He really is a dick to Ginny because she is daring to date anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just... So I'm actually going to agree with Tepper, and I have finished my reread for this podcast, um, that I'm going to say that he is more... He does peak tool... Tool peak? Peak tool? <laughs> In this book. Um for the important detail that I don't think, at least, he ever, like, apologizes for or acknowledges the ways in which he was a tool in this book. I don't I don't think he really ever does. Whereas, in the next book, we will see Ron being an enormous tool. Um, but he does at least acknowledge and tries not to, like, make excuses for his behavior, um, which I think is is, is definitely a character development for him. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. 
for sure. And I think one of the things that's interesting in this one is where we see Ron being terrible to Lavender. We see Hermione calling him out on it. Like there's a there's a scene where Ron comes like immediately after Hermione has seen it. Ron and Harry come in to see her in a classroom and Hermione tells Ron not to just leave Lavender standing outside. And I remember reading that and being like, wow, like she's she's real upset about this situation, obviously, but she still doesn't want Ron to be a dick to Lavender, which is pretty, like she doesn't take it out on Lavender. She takes it out on Ron, who is the person who does, deserves it. That's a, an interesting reading because I think I always read that line as really snarky, as her just like calling him out and making him uh, see it. But I, I like that reading. Um, I think it can be both. Yeah. Um, I do, <laughs> do want to point out that while Ron is absolutely the biggest tool in this one, Hermione does the same thing to Cormac McGlagan that Ron does to Lavender Brown. Um, he is just more of a tool, so we don't mind as much. But Hermione does specifically bring Cormac to a party to piss Ron off. That's true. Yeah, I feel like we just forgive Hermione for that because Cormac McLaggen is like j- j- just just a horrible creature. Um, but that is true. Uh, <laughs> and I'm trying, I'm trying to decide if it's better or worse that Hermione knows what she's doing and Ron only sort of like I don't think Ron entirely understands that he is using lavender to get at Hermione. Whereas Hermione entirely understands that she's using Cormac to get at Ron. Um, And so in a way that's worse, but also Hermione does not like enter fully into a whole relationship with Cormac McLaggen. She goes on one date with him despite Ron. So I'm on the fence about this. I think that the going on one, one public date is very different from like making out with and never talking to and continuing to have a relationship. And then trying to get out of the relationship by being mean and sulky, then, like, I, I think that even th- though she knew what she was doing, she didn't take it to it the extent that it was, like, cruel to Cormac. No, I agree with that. And I do get the sense that at the beginning she was maybe considering it, but her time with Cormac just sucked too much to be worth it. Um I do also, as long as we're delving into Ron and Lavender's relationship, I don't think Ron and Lavender ever had a conversation where they confirmed that they were dating. I think Ron and Lavender started making out and Lavender kind of went with it and Ron didn't correct her, which is on him. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I do think that we can point out once again, as comes up so often in young adult literature, when you're getting into a relationship with somebody or you think you're getting into a relationship with somebody, it's probably a good idea to have the conversation with them, the DTR, the define the relationship conversation. I don't know if people still call it that. That's what they did when I was a youth. Maybe that's just what my, I don't know. Anyway. And make sure that you're all on the same page about what's going on here. Um, because I'm. there are many, many relationships that I have witnessed with exactly this dynamic uh, in high school where teenagers start making out and one of them thinks that means they are dating and the other one thinks that means that they are making out. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, you need to talk about talk about your feelings, talk about what you want. Um, but yeah, I just want to double down on like 
that is, I think, one of like Ron's most dickish moves in this book is um, that he doesn't want to be in a relationship with Lavender anymore, but instead of actually breaking up with her, he just like acts in a way to attempt to get her to break up with him, which I have been on the receiving end of that treatment, and it's just it's just the worst. Don't ever do that to somebody. It's absolutely terrible. And it's definitely a technique that teens use on purpose all the time. I, when I was a teen, I remember having this conversation with friends about, like, how they were going to break up with them. And they're like, I'm just going to be, like... I'm just going to avoid them. I'm just not going to, like, call them. And then they'll just get the picture, and maybe they'll break up with me. And it's like, no, no, just break up with them. But I don't want to hurt them. Just break up with them. I can think of at least two separate times that I used that technique in high school. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm the Ron here. We're both Pisces. (laughs) I don't think that, well, I don't know. Anyway, I definitely did that in high school. And then sometimes it didn't work, and then I still had to break up directly and would be like, why do I have to break up with you directly? This sucks. I'm conflict averse. Oh, that's great. Um, Is it? (laughs) Well, I mean, I was was being being sarcastic a little bit. Um, uh, It's great that you have learned and grown as a person. That's the Indeed. part that's great. So I haven't spoken to Tom in five days. When do you think you... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this reminds me, though, that uh, after Ginny and Harry kiss for the first time, they leave the party so that they can go and talk and kiss lots more. But also they leave the party so that they can talk. That's true. Maybe that's why they last and Ron and Lavender don't. So that's a good segue into something that I wanted to bring up, which is I think that this is the book where Harry, like, really starts to get a little bit more emotionally intelligent, which, like, I really enjoy. And there's specifically, like, there's a moment of, like, Harry acknowledging that other people have rich internal lives that he hasn't done so much before at the end of the book, which I love. Um which is where, like, after everything has gone down, there's just, like, a moment where Harry's reflecting on the whole battle that has taken place and how um, it was Ron and Hermione and Ginny and then Neville and Luna. And there's this beautiful moment where he's like, they were the only ones who answered the summons, probably because they were the ones who had missed the day the most and were, like, checking their coins all the time. And I just... I just love that we see these glimpses of Harry starting to be more curious about what's going on with other people and be thinking about what's going on in people's emotional lives because that's definitely a new thing for him and it's really cool that we see that start to develop. It definitely is. And one of the questions that I was thinking about while reading this was the question that was posed early on of when does this series stop being a kid's series and start being a teen series? And I strongly posit that it continues to be a kid series the whole way through, but it also starts being a teen series in book five. But I, I would argue that it, it does continue to be a kid series the whole way through, and part of it is the like the way that we see Harry start to think of others, but never see that complexity develop in terms of like the good versus evil battle we see it in terms of some of the players but because Voldemort is such like a he's lost all of his his good all of his humanity it keeps it in the realm of like a middle grade novel for me interesting 
Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I'm glad to hear that because I am have almost finished Chamber of Secrets with my six-year-old and I've been trying to decide how far we're going to go before I say now we take a break until you are older. I do think there is also thinking about middle grade versus uh, high school, which I think you probably know more about than I do because you've spent more time thinking about children's libraries, being in library school. But uh, there is like, like, I'm pretty sure Harry has sex in this book. There's like a lot of talking about him and Ginny sneaking off for hours at a time all over the grounds, right? Like, I'm pretty sure that happens, but it's all very prudish. And mm-hmm. I I do feel like a true young adult novel would give us a little bit more behind the scenes there. Yeah, there'd be boob crazing. Yeah, exactly. Sure, at There'd no. at least be like some fumbling and a cut to black, you know? But I'm like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that happens in this one. Yeah, that's fair. I like, I really like that point you're making, Kat, about how it's not just what happens with like the, because I think we've been focusing when we've been doing our analysis of is this a children's book, is this a young adult book, is sort of what's been going on with the protagonists themselves. But I like this idea of looking at sort of the bigger arc of the story and sort of the complex, like the relative complexity or simplicity of sort of the major arc and the the fact that Harry the Harry Potter series does really remain at a kind of binary there is good there is evil um framework and that that makes it more of a children's series than a young adult series and there are definitely like people who complicate it like Snape complicates it and some of the things that we learn about Dumbledore later also complicate it but because there is like a singular enemy who is singularly evil like I I remember reading it in this go through I was like man how nice it would be to have a single enemy to fight against how nice it must be to have a single enemy that you can't see any good parts to to fight against. And I was like, oh, yeah, kids book. So as usual, everybody else is thinking in depth. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. There's no sex. Um, but I thought that too. <laughs> but I didn't assume that they had been having sex. Right. I just feel like, I mean, they're 16. In the wizarding world, you come of age at 17, right? Like, people apparently yeah. get married at, like, 19. It, I just, you know, I just think it tracks. And also, like, Ginny's had a crush on him since she was 11. So, like, that's a lot of pent-up feelings. I just, I, I, I'm just enjoying the, the way that you go at your analysis, Heifer, that's all. Um, I don't disagree with you, but, uh, yeah. Tell <laughs> the people what they want to know. <laughs> um so we've got like five more minutes so uh we should we should focus these on what we want to talk about kat you said oh what do you want to talk about for five minutes i had a fan fiction question about uh Ginny malfoy fan fiction so maybe not the most important for the last five minutes but disagree uh, (laughs) go for it so you know the cassandra clare series the City of Bones, etc. Mm-hmm. Clary is Ginny, and whatever his face is is Malfoy, but if he had been raised in a family that was on the side of good. Yes. I haven't read it. Oh. <laughs> but I'm sure I'm sure we have listeners who have, so say it yes. for their benefit. Jace, I know you've Jace been telling me to read this series for years, and it's I great. haven't. It's, I'm bad. it's, it's great. Yeah. But also, there's like 700 bazillion of them, so sure. It's intimidating to start. Um... It made me think of the difference between why Harry Potter is a kid series and that one is a teen series. 
even though that one also has like a an evil dude who's the most evil dude and there's like defined good and defined bad but people switch sides but there's definitely people talking about wanting to have sex in it for sure that's it we can move on from that no i have follow-up questions okay so I have I have read one or two of the City of Bones a long time ago, but from what I can remember, this makes sense. So follow up mm-hmm. question the first: Is it like actually true that like that series started out as Harry Potter fan fiction that like went off the rails? But like, Clary that is, is what based I, on Ginny. That's what I have been told, but I have not done my own research, so I cannot confirm nor deny. But that is my impression, and it tracks for the rest of the series so that's incredible and i love i really want somebody to like make a catalog and it would be hard to do this because not everyone's going to admit to it but how many like novels exist out there in the ether that started out as harry potter fan fiction and then just evolved um to be their own thing almost unrecognizable but do still have threads of that um and so my second this is less a follow-up question and more just a thought experiment which is that I think it would be very fun to, like, create a chart of, like, like a Venn diagram of, like, the things that, like, children's and young adult lit have in common and not in common. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, you know, they could both have a monolithic good versus evil, but, like, if so, must include boobs um, to be young (laughs) adult or something. Anyways, that's just where my brain went. I like must I acknowledge mean, the reality of sex. I, w- I would say must include burning lust, which we get close to in this one, but doesn't quite. It's, it's less bodily and more mentally, because Harry does talk about the like monster in his mind when he sees Dean and Ginny kiss for the first time or whatever. But then that has to include asexual realities as well which I guess you could yes. you could just have like acknowledging the existence in other people yeah yeah I mm-hmm. guess just 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 having any questions or conversations around sexuality yeah but, but there I'm, is I'm I mean just... yeah you're right there there is an acknowledgement of sexuality in in Harry at least even earlier in the series is it but also like there are lots of teen books that don't have any characters who are like whose like main thrust is lust or who are even really dealing with it at all mm-hmm. like it's not like I would say in like the Sabriel book the first one definitely a teen book no feelings of sexuality although later there are but not not in the first book at all so it's not like a requirement even even in like a, a, a main character who does have feelings of desire mm-hmm. at some point. So I wouldn't say that that to denies your premise that there must be boobs at some point. On that profound <laughs> note. <laughs> there must be boobs at some point. <laughs> That's what we're calling this episode. No. Oh my goodness. I also Bailey, I'm that's so your kidding. legacy on this show. What? I said that's your legacy on this show, Bailey. No, my legacy is casual queers casually existing. <laughs> That's my legacy. <laughs> We're going to make two t-shirts. One will say that and one will say there must be boobs. There can be all kinds of books for all kinds of teens. Some books will have lots of boobs. Some books will have no boobs. That's fine. All book bodies are 
good book buddies. <clears throat> exactly. <laughs> Regardless of their level of desire. <laughs> or sexualities. All right. Thank you, Kat, for joining us for this conversation. And thank you for your ongoing support. If uh, if you, listener, want to join us on an episode, head over to patreon.com slash yapodcast and find out what kind of perks you can get for what kind of money. Thanks for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at yapodcast, and individually, I'm at Tepperbear, Bailey's at thebalesosaurus, and Kat, do you want to include your handle? At KatBMickJee. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon, like extremely cool people like Kat do. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shoutout to our patrons, Catherine Resch, Erica Setchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Dever. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Tee Public. If you buy some of our existing merch, we might be uh, ready to make more merch, like maybe <laughs> casual queers, casually existing. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and by sharing this episode with a friend. Special thanks to Great Bear, as always, for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tefra Jemian and edited by Tom Galatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Hey there, campers. My name is Emmett, and I'm the host of Gaze in the Woods, a podcast that explores rural LGBTQIA2 experiences, from radical fairies and lesbian farmers to backwoods slam poets and community organizers organizing communities the community didn't know where they were all along. Can you have a pride parade when you're the only gay in the village? What is camp when you live in a trailer? And if a genderqueer bear shares their pronouns in the forest and nobody gets it, is anything real? I don't know, but let's find out together on Gaze in the Woods, an Upford Network podcast. I'm Tom Zalatni, host and producer of Up for Discussion, the emotionally honest comedy podcast. What does that mean? It means we're not afraid to get vulnerable, explore the human side of comedy, and be super duper open about the ways that we're struggling to become better people along the way. Still have no idea what I'm talking about? Fair enough. Come give us a listen. The Up for Discussion podcast, available on the Upford Network and wherever else you get your podcasts.